You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Ancient tools and burials, plants and seeds, Neanderthals. All these things we make no apology for the study of archaeology. But we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast, episode 33. Today, we're talking about Stonehenge and all the cool new stuff that we found out about it since 2014 and onwards. We talk about the new Mega Henge that's across the street, how much space was needed for the people to live in to build it, and why those are really important when we're talking about other megaliths around the, around the world. Get ready to think critically. You will see are a staple of archaeology. But we don't do dinosaurs, no we don't do dinosaurs, no we don't do dinosaurs. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Archaeological no, Fantasies podcast. Hey Ken, no, how's it going? It's going alright, Sarah. Hanging in here. The spring came early, but winter's coming back up in New England, so we'll see. We're supposed to get a foot of snow on Monday. This is after it was 70 degrees last week, so <laughs> I don't know. I suppose Somewhere. that's what you get for living up north. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's it's weird that you know I expect to get ticks at, in the spring and the summer. I got I got a big big ass tick bite yesterday walking a field looking for some looking at some historical sites. I'm thinking, oh now early spring that's what you get for it. And now all those ticks are going to be covered in snow because it's going to snow at least several inches is what they're saying for Monday. So well, good, maybe it'll kill them. Yeah, let's hope. Oh man. I, I'm I'm all about I'm a, I, I love animals I I, I see a spider Ticks in the house aren't I catch them I catch them and I bring them outside mosquitoes I you know I said listen go go bother somebody else <laughs> but ticks ticks when I pull ticks off of me in the field students get are, are I find this disconcerting I'll hold them in tweezers I'll pull their legs off and then I'll burn them to death and then I put them <laughs> and then no can you. Here's the deal That's there. horrible. <laughs> I then, but here's what I do. I then put their little charred bodies on like toothpicks, and I put them in, <laughs> and I put them around the site so that other ticks will see that. They'll go, "Oh my god, what a monster!" And they'll leave me alone. So Ken, you're you're telling us you're Vlad the Impaler when it comes to ticks. I do not like ticks. <laughs> I have I have on occasion I have actually been described because apparently ticks oh like god. me a lot. And, well, some and people so, do have the sweeter blood, so yeah. Uh, I am, in fact, Sarah, a tick magnet. <laughs> yeah, oh, God. no kidding. Yeah, which is which is that's a bad thing for an archaeologist, but. Uh, well, you know, you should sign up for that study. They're looking for people who've been exposed but aren't expressing Lyme disease symptoms uh, to study. Hey, knock on, sure knock you... on wood. So yeah, far, right? oh, so far, we're all right. <laughs> Okay, so today we're not talking about ticks. No, let's. Then, well, we already we really, did. We've we've covered that. Let's move. That's on. true. Our other topic for today is. Uh, okay, so our other topic for today is we're talking about Stonehenge. Yeah, uh, one of the coolest places on the planet. Um, I've been it lucky is really enough. Cool. I know it's totally cool. I've actually been lucky enough to to see it a couple of times. Maybe I've been there three times. Once when I was a kid. Rub it in. Yeah. No. Well, listen. My parents decided, you know, that that uh, my sister had had some health issues, and my parents said, you know what? And she's fine. Uh, <laughs> this is a long time ago. We said, let's let's actually 
go, let's, let's visit the world. And so we went, it was one of those kind of stereotypical American tours of Europe where, you know, if it's Tuesday, it must be Belgium. So I think in like in a week we were in England, France, Amsterdam, and Germany. So it was like, if you blink, you missed a whole, an entire country. Yeah. Um, but we, but we actually, it was, it was the coolest thing, Sarah. We got like a bus tour. Uh, my father would not drive in England. They, you know, they drive on the wrong side of the road there. They're crazy. But my, yeah. uh, my, but my, so we got a bus tour, and it was this amazing. They had um, a retired British history professor was our tour guide, and this is a guy with like a beautiful white beard and a tweed jacket with leather patch patch patches, and he smoked a pipe, and he had this a monocle. Almost, man. They have this wonderful British accent. And that was that was long enough ago that you actually could walk in among the stones. So that's I'm maybe I was like fifteen or sixteen years old at the time. I'm sixty-three now. So it's uh, something like fifty years ago. Almost fifty years ago. Yeah, you're Oh, sorry. Yeah, but I'm just saying anyway, it was amazing. Even as a kid seeing it, I thought, oh my God, this is just absolutely remarkable and i've gone back since and now you of course it's it's cordoned off so that you cannot walk in among the stones because of concerns of of people destroying things of, of um, vandalism and whatever but it is still a tremendously exciting and an amazing place and if you do have the opportunity to travel and if you are in the south of england do not miss stonehenge it's a, it is absolutely astonishing place Apparently they do have certain times of the year that they open the stones up to the public. So you can still get into the stones, but it is really uh, monitored while you're there. Right, you can't yeah. just wander up like you used to be able to. Yeah, I think it's like on the summer solstice, there's a very controlled access yeah. to the site. Um, I know they open the site up to the different neo-pagans in the area on the solstices and the equinoxes yeah, but yeah, yeah, i don't know absolutely. i don't know if that's like an open to the public time or you have to be registered yeah, yeah. i'm not uh, sure i i mean one of the issues was that back in the day on certain days a, whole, a bunch of you know hippies would show up get naked drop acid <laughs> and climb up on top of the stones and that's you know that's not very respectful of this obviously very significant ancient monument um, and so the British being who they are, they thought, you know, it would be better to keep it people. You still get pretty close to it and you can take wonderful yeah. photographs of it. You just can't walk in among the stones. Yeah. So uh, we're going to talk about uh, modern Stonehenge and we're also going to touch on some of the new research that's come out. Uh, and by new, I yeah. mean 2014. So there you go. Very um, cool. And in fact, 2015, they are working at Stonehenge. As are they still out there? Okay, good. I think so. And they certainly are in the in the general vicinity. Um, Stonehenge is it's a, this is a long term, uh, continuing project to better understand what that site means, what it meant to, to ancient people, who built it, when did they build it, and what was the reason for constructing it in the first place. So yeah, the site um, itself was built. The, the the date that I last saw was three thousand BC. Yeah, it's it's certainly it's more than four thousand years ago, a little less than five thousand years ago, and because this was an ongoing project, so this took place over yeah. many generations. They didn't they didn't like throw this thing up as a, a fait accompli, as a complete um, monument, all at once. So this happened 
Um, they kept adding to it. They kept changing it, altering it. So this was a many, it's hundreds and hundreds of years of construction, um, during which time they renovated it, altered it, changed it, made it bigger, better, and even more impressive. And it's important to point out as well, a lot of folks know about Stonehenge. They've heard of Stonehenge, and they may have the misapprehension that Stonehenge is a one-off. It was, it was, it's the stone monument. In fact, Stonehenge is one of literally thousands yeah. of megalithic monuments built at around the same time. Yeah. Um, and those monuments included menhirs, which are just big ass upright stones. It includes <laughs> um, dolmens, sometimes called coits, which are um, upright stones with a large table on top of it. Those were burial chambers and those were covered up with soil, and those are very impressive. And then there are hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of stone circles. So places like Swinside and Castle Rig and the Merry Maidens. A lot uh, of that. And uh, yeah. Seahenge. Yes, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so the building circles, sometimes 50 feet in diameter, sometimes 100 feet in diameter, um, uh, even larger, um, Avebury is a ginormous stone circle with dozens upon dozens of stones. So erecting stones in uh, big circles or near circles was common. Stonehenge is unique in that there, it's not just a series of upright stones, it's also the lintels joining them all together. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, Stonehenge is the most elaborate of the hinges of the, of the circular monument. So it deserves its reputation of being like the most impressive. It's not the largest. Avebury Circle is much larger. It doesn't have the, the greatest number of stones. Karnak, which is thousands of stones lined up in straight lines. I think it's 12 or 13 straight lines that go on for more than a mile. That's in Northern France in Brittany. Um, that, many, many, many more stones covering a much larger area. So, but Stonehenge is, in terms of the amount of design that had to go into it, the amount of engineering that had to go into it, it I think it's fair to say it's the most elaborate um, of the of the megalithic monuments. So it deserves its special um, place in the pantheon well, of the stone monuments. It's certainly the most studied of them, and that's good because the I. I love the techniques that they've been using here real recently to get into the, cause we, we know a lot about the stones. We know a lot about the burials in the area. Cause apparently right. the henge has been a basic, it's basically been a cemetery since it was created. Mm. And right. it's, All, it's yeah. interesting how they've squirreled the bodies away inside of there. Most of them have been cremated. I know that there's been a few full skeletons recovered or, right. you know, mostly full skeletons recovered, but what they've really started doing in the last few years is instead of just digging, they've been using um, ground penetrating radar sure. and magnetometers to um, get under the ground and see what's in the ground before they dig. And the benefit to this, for people who don't know what I'm talking about, um, the benefit to using GPR and magnetometer readings is that since you don't have to dig, you can cover more distance and you can work a lot faster and you can get results. You can get um, preliminary results a whole lot faster. 
Sure. And it allows oh, yeah. you to get a bigger picture of what's going on because you can, uh, I'll put a link to this uh, Mike Pitts article on digging deeper, the blog. Um, you can see the area that's been surveyed by, I believe, I believe that's magnetometer, but it could be GPR. Um, but it's a huge, huge area. And what they've discovered through that is um, an even larger area that I believe has over a hundred stones that they think were buried or not buried, but stood up in this line here. That's basically right across the street from the mm -hmm. Stonehenge. Right. And people are reading the news as well. You know that within the last several months, they talk about a super hinge, which yeah. again was discovered through this, the um, remote sensing. And this is an area out toward Darrington walls, which was apparently was the, the, the habitation during the period when Stonehenge was being built, people who came there to help build the monument were feasting and having ceremonies and actually doing the hard work of building Stonehenge. Um, and, and so it's a village site with lots of evidence of, of feasts and evidence of, of the workers having lived there while they built Stonehenge. Now they're finding through remote sensing that there was this enormous perhaps stone circle, um, that these these uprights appear to have been set in the ground and then knocked over and buried. And mm. until, obviously, ground penetrating radar, remote sensing, is all great. Ultimately, with archaeology, we like ground truth. We like to be able to That's dig true. those holes yes. and verify and maybe get... We're able to... We are still not at a point with the technology where we don't need to dig. We're at a point with technology where it's great to have it and it points out areas of extreme interest where we still need to go down and move a move a lot of dirt to see really what's going on someday maybe in archaeology we'll have you know the equivalent of of uh, sonograms that we'll be able to do <laughs> of the of the of the sub the subsurface and maybe not need to dig at all but we can we'll be able to image and analyze and measure everything remotely at this point the folks who, who exposed, who uh, did the remote sensing for the Superhenge, they themselves say, this is amazing. This is great. It's the first step. We're going to need oh, to go yeah. down there and test some of this stuff. But the nice thing about using the GPR and the magnetometer stuff, though, is like you can already see where you need to dig. Right. You yeah, don't oh, yeah. guess anymore. Right. Right. Oh, it's extremely useful. Yeah. Yeah. What's what's cool is you mentioned the burials at Stonehenge. Um, there are there are burial mounds. You know, you, you're out at Stonehenge. You look off oh, yeah, yeah. some some distance away, and you go, "Am I in? Wait a minute, am I in Ohio?" Because they right. look like standard burial mounds. Those are the mounds in which um, some of the some really significant burials have been found. And what's cool about that is when they analyze the bones of the people buried in those and these are these are these are mucky mucks these are important people because those burials have lots of cool stuff including gold artifacts um yeah yeah and when they look at the the, the bones when they do a chemical analysis about strontium analysis they're actually able to show that in a lot of cases those people are not local people they're not they didn't grow up in the area of Stonehenge they didn't live in the south of England in fact, one of the famous ones is called the Amesbury Archer because mm -hmm. he's found in the burial with all of this equipment that makes it look like that this guy was, in fact, an archer. Um, very, uh, uh, so, uh, very sophisticated, very impressive artifacts found with him. When they do the strontium analysis, analysis of his bones, 
what they determined was this guy probably was born and grew up in Germany. So the question, of course, then goes, wait a minute, what is this guy from Germany doing at Stonehenge? And that's been actually found a number of times. And the the conclusion is reached that Stonehenge was a real pilgrimage site, that people throughout Western Europe knew of it, and some people actually visited it, and some important people actually ended up being buried near the monument, even though it was not their home territory. That's fascinating. That's interesting, and it raises the question, well, maybe Stonehenge was this massive monumental project that drew in people not just from the local countryside, but from all across Western Europe. And that no matter if you lived in France, if you lived in Germany, if you lived in Italy, you knew maybe you never would visit Stonehenge, but you knew of its existence. That's well, pretty finding, cool. Five thousand years ago, and finding this the the mega hinge across the street, or your uh, yeah, finding the the village site and the the mega hinge, the Durrington walls, yeah, Durrington, the Durrington yeah. uh, superhinge walls. Um, finding all of that is really important because you and I have made comments about this in the past when we were talking about things like um, well, like the Bosnian pyramids right. and uh, other not actual sites. Um, but we've talked about, you know, where were the people housed? Where were the workers? Where where were the people feeding the workers? Where Where is all of this? And we can point to something like Stonehenge now where we have, well, I mean, we've always had the pyramids to point to, but now we have Stonehenge as well because we can say we knew it existed, but here it is. Right. Well, we, we've been talking about this again and again, infrastructure. You right. can't build Stonehenge without infrastructure. You Especially need, as many times as it's been rebuilt. Right. You need workers, and workers need to be housed. They need to be fed. Um, sometimes they die during the proce- process, and they need to be buried. So you can't – Stonehenge all by itself, that's mysterious. Stonehenge with a village of workmen, workers, um, the pyramids are mysterious by themselves – but with a, a, a with dormitories surrounding the pyramids where the workers lived, that that shows that's the, the, the nuts and bolts, the nitty gritty of how these places were made by a lot of hardworking people. But right yeah. when we when you've got you know mysterious pyramids in Bosnia, I, but you don't have any evidence of the infrastructure that would have been absolutely necessary for the construction of this supposed pyramid, you've got a real problem. So with, with real archaeological sites, you know, we that's what we look for and that's what we find. And that's this, that certainly is the case for Stonehenge. Well, and I mean, if you're just looking at the area that's in this scan and you're saying that that is the, the, the basically the village area for the workers, um, just looking at the size of the workers' living space compared to the size of Stonehenge. Now, keeping in mind, this is a 1,500-year period from the first incarnation that right. we are aware of to the final incarnation of Stonehenge as we know it um, in ancient time. I mean, you would expect to see a large living area because maybe some of these people just stayed. I mean, maybe this was a permanent village after a while. Um, but just looking at the size of that and then taking it to something like, let's pretend like the Bosnian pyramids are real. You know, they, we were saying that the, the main pyramid, the sun pyramid of the sun or something, it's like two, maybe three times the size of oh. uh, the, the Pyramid of Khufu. 
Yeah, much it's supposed to be much larger. Right, exactly. Right, 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 right. So my point is, you know, we're looking at the size of the village square for the workers here. Just magnify that. And that's how much space you need to have for the builders of the Bosnian pyramids, if they were real. And we don't find yeah. that. Yeah, and certainly if, you, if anybody's doing archaeology there, you're digging test pits, you're going to find the community where the workers were, were housed. You have to. You have to find the bakeries that were making their bread and the the the, the, the kitchens the that were making their food. animal sacrifices that were being oh, had. Yeah. They've they, yeah, they had animal teeth, so they know roughly how many people were here and how long they were coming right. and visiting oh, yeah, yeah. and from where they were coming based on, like you were saying, the the, anal, the, the analysis of the teeth analysis, makeup. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. So it's okay. incredibly cool. So we're going to go to break real quick, and when we come back, we're going to keep talking about Stonehenge. Hey, everyone. I'm here with Dan Bigman of Bigman Geophysical with an awesome special offer for APN listeners. Dan, what have you got for us? Well, uh, for the past year, I've been everywhere I've went, people have requested training on ground penetrating radar. And they've all voiced concerns that there's nowhere to get accessible quality training uh, for a really reasonable price. So what Bigman Geophysical is doing is we're going to put on a three-part webinar series on GPR basics, ground penetrating radar basics, that's going to take place Mondays, April 18th, April 25th, and May 2nd, 2016. In this course, we're going to break it into three parts. Part one is going to go over basic concepts and theory of ground penetrating radar. Part two is going to talk about processing data, visualizing data, and GPR data interpretation. And then part three is going to be all about case studies and applications of ground penetrating radar to uh, several different industries, including archaeology. And how long does each class period last? So each class period is going to have a live section on Monday. Uh, for each of those Mondays, it's going to be about an hour and 15 to an hour and a half of, of class time. And then uh, there's going to be additional time for question and answers throughout each course. What we're also going to do is do an unlimited replay for each topic for each week from Wednesday to Sunday. So if you miss it or you want to see it again, which we hope you do, then you'll be able to log into a special website and replay uh, the webinar. And how much is this going to cost us? So the regular price of this webinar is $2.99. And what we're going to do for APN listeners as a special deal is give a 25% discount for the first seven days that we're running registration. So that's going to go from March 7th till March 14th at 8 p.m. Eastern time for that 25% discount. After that, we're still going to give APN listeners uh, a discount that's, uh, you know, just for them, that's going to be 10%. But if you really want to uh, get in this for relatively inexpensive, then the 25% off is going to give you a rate of 225 for the course. So where can people go to sign up for this class? You just have to pop over to bigmangeophysical.com forward slash APN to get the special rate. That's B-I-G-M-A-N-G-E-O-P-H-Y-S-I-C-A-L.com forward slash APN. And there they can sign up and go to a secure website to enter all their information and get that 25% off. So whether you're a seasoned archaeologist or just getting started, this course will really be an asset for everyone. Head over to bigmangeophysical.com forward slash APN, or you can click through from the APN website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com to get your 25% off today. and welcome back and we are still talking about Stonehenge and I want to harp on the burials a little bit because sure, they're really important um, 
I did not know that there were people buried directly underneath the stones. That was something that I learned today because uh, I, I had heard something about the stones being markers, but I did not realize that they were directly placed on top of the cremated remains of some of these people. Um, what I found really interesting was one of the first excavations where they were finding the, the cremated burial pits. They found, I believe they said 56 or 58 of them which is roughly the number of weeks in a year, which I've always known that Stonehenge is a calendar of sorts, but I think it's interesting that they used precisely spaced burials with headstones, basically, to create the calendar. And I, I have heard that when they did the analysis of the bones that they were finding, that they had an equal number of men and women. So that's important to know as well. Yeah, it's cool. I think it's really cool because we're finding... You know, you talk about the, the, the archer, and I, there's two of the archers now, and I believe they're both male, and I know for a long time we just assumed that, you know, only the important males were getting buried in, in really important sites like this. And just from the bone analysis now, from the features on the, on the bones and stuff, we're finding out that there's an equal number of really important women who are being buried out here as well, which kind of changes our perspective of the area a little bit just because you know we're including a gender that wasn't always there like historically yeah it's kind of it's a side issue but i think it's um diane giffords gonzalez who's a um, anthropologist um i'm not sure where she's teaching now but she she wrote, wrote a number of really interesting articles about how modern artists who are recreating images of from antiquity so often have applied this kind of really gender biased view so that in other words if, if when they would draw, when they would paint paintings of what it looked like in the upper paleolithic it was the men were hunting and the men were painting the images on the cave walls and the women were well you know they were taking care of the kids and they were making skins and it's the same right. thing it, the artwork that I've seen depicting Stonehenge, it's almost always, it's hairy guys in sort of <laughs> loincloths schlepping huge stones. And it's like, I don't, I can't remember any of these if I, if there are any women involved at all. And that's, that's a, maybe that's a, that's a, an interesting topic for another podcast on how our, um, recreations of what we think happened in the past are in fact informed by our own kind of biases and misconceptions and kind of temporal chauvinism. And those things need to be addressed because, you know, half of the people who were living in jolly old England 5,000 years ago were women and they were doing something more than raising kids. Raising kids is an important thing, but certainly um, it, it is, it doesn't make any sense to apply kind of a 1950s, Western stereotype to sex roles uh, to people 5,000 years ago. And that well, doesn't make sense to, to if, if you were somebody back in that time, it, it wouldn't make sense to exclude an, like half of your population. You know, well, exactly. if you needed something yeah, exactly. done, you probably weren't like, no, no, not you. You know, <laughs> not without a really good reason. I guess, yeah. Um, well, I remember still, that, yeah. No, go ahead. I was going to say, um, I thought, I thought maybe briefly we could talk about how ginormously impressive the monument itself is and what it implies about the capabilities of people 5,000 years ago. Um, you know, that, that, that when I add it all up, I did this, this once as a little exercise. 
that Stonehenge itself, based on the major stones and, and with estimates how much each one weighed, there's over three and a half million pounds of stone that had to be transported to that location on the Salisbury Plain. And most of those stones are of the sarsens. That's the, the big uprights that make up the circle, the lintels, yeah. um, and the trilithons in the middle. We can talk about that in a little bit. Those stones are all, you don't find them right ne next to Stonehenge itself. They're about 25 miles away. And yeah. that that raises a really interesting issue, the, the trilithons. Stonehenge is made up of, there are 30 upright stones in the circle. Those are the, the, the sarsens. Sarsen really refers to the, the, um, the identity of the rock. It's this incredibly hard sandstone. And those sarsens, they are about 13 feet in length, and there are 30 of them. Each one of them weighs about 50,000 pounds. The, the trilithons, and there are five sets of three stones that are in the middle of the monument, in kind of a horseshoe shape. The largest of the trilithons is like 100,000 pounds. It's 30 feet long. Now, these folks don't have beasts of burden. These folks don't have any mechanized way of moving those rocks. Imagine you today in the modern world tasked with the challenge of moving a 100,000 pound stone 25 miles. That's, and they did it, obviously they did it, and trying to figure out how they managed that and how many people it would have taken and whether they had a trackway or whether they used levers or whether they used um, uh, any, any one of a number of other methods. That's, no matter how they did it, that is an enormous undertaking. And now not only did they have to move these ginormous stones such a great distance, they then had to erect them in sockets that they dug into the chalk. And that itself is another uh, very difficult and challenging task using, again, probably levers. And all that's really impressive. But then when you remember that the 30 sarsens and each of the sets of three stones in the center, you've got this large lintel stone that you have to raise up 10 or 15 or 20 feet up into the air to then set it down on top of the sarsens or on top of the trilithons. That's another amazing feat. And what's even more challenging is they didn't just lift these things up and kind of depend on gravity to hold them together. The tops of the sarsens and the tops of the uprights that make up the trilithons were carved into little knobs so that each sarsen has two knobs on it. And they then, on the underside of the lintels, carved out um, depressions. It's, it's it Effectively, it's mortise and tenon joinery like you have in carpentry. Um, the way they put together Stonehenge, the way I explain it to my students, is it's like a giant Lego set where everything <laughs> snaps into place. But now here's the deal, Sarah. You're looking Legos at stones... Cool. The, the, the lintels are 12,000 pounds each. You've got to lift this thing up um, maybe 10 feet into the air, <clears throat> and it has to fit precisely. If the hole under, on that bottom of that lintel doesn't match up precisely with the knob on top of the sarsen, and then that has to match up with the next one and the next one and the next one, the thing falls apart. And not only that, but the lintels have to be curved. The monument is a big circle. So for these things to fit together, <coughs> excuse me, they not only do there, does it have to be part of a circle on the outside, part of a curve on the inside, but they have to be angled on their edges so that they 
each one fits adjacent tightly to the next one. That's an enormous undertaking. Well, Ken, it requires Ken, precision. The, the reason why this worked out the way that it did is because um, giants brought the stones from Ireland uh, during the reign of uh, King Arthur. <coughs> well, yeah. And, const and constructed it there um, for some reason. So, so well, it's it's very easy to do when you're roughly twice the size of these these stones. I mean, you're a giant, true. so you can just pick them up and set them down. Well, um, actually, one of the historical legends is that Merlin did it with magic. Yes, Merlin and then there's Merlin. Yes. <coughs> um, the, but all joking aside, there is a really neat video on uh, YouTube, and I will try my best to dig it out again. But it's a it's a guy showing how he moves very large and very heavy stones by himself. That's Just Wally using... Wallington. Wally Wallington go. is the guy. Yeah. And he's, he's, I, well, he's more like in the upper Midwest, Wisconsin, Minnesota. Yeah. And yeah, he's, and he's, he's made show. a very convincing YouTube video. I mean, I was pretty sold on it. So I don't know if that's how they would have managed to move those stones because the other idea that I have is the, the working theory they have for the Moai statues in, on Easter Island is they basically walked them to right, the positions yeah. that they were going to put them in by using ropes and basically tipping it back yeah. and forth as they yeah. moved forward. Yeah, the important so, thing here is that when, these are all examples of experimental archaeology or replicative archaeology. Yes. And we understand that when we do an archaeological experiment, we don't necessarily show that this is exactly how they must have done it. What we show is this is how they might have done it, which right. is a great, which is a great rejoinder to anybody who says mere humans couldn't have built Stonehenge or mere humans couldn't build the pyramids because um, they didn't have the technological capability of doing it. We don't, as archaeologists, we don't have to show that we know exactly how they did it. <clears throat> we just have to show that there was a simple procedure available for them that they could have applied. So whether it's putting these things on sledges and just having hundreds and hundreds of people drag them across the ground. <clears throat> I recently saw an example of people essentially rowing the stones into place that they have, they had, I think it was had five guys on either five people on either side of it. And each one of them had a, 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 a block of wood that was kind of like a lever. And when they combined all you know, five of the guys on one side, five of the guys on the other, and they would all lift up at the same time and then walk it back. It actually moved the stone forward huh. five or six feet. And if you yeah, continue that. doing that over and over again, and, and the thing is they would do it for a while and it, it, your job would be to move it a hundred feet. And when you got it a hundred feet, there were 10 more guys ready to, who are fresh, ready to take over and continue that. If this is an important vital project, for your culture, the fact that it's hard is irrelevant. The fact that it takes a lot of work is irrelevant. The fact that it takes a lot of people. Again, you've got the people, you've got that they're willing to do the work, and it's important. Well, how far were I, they able to get it moved in a day when they were doing that, the rowing? It, this, you know, I don't remember how long they kept up the experiment, but I think that what they basically, when they did the math, they said that it wouldn't take even say a year to bring each one of those stones the 25 miles necessary. Now, some of the stones from Stonehenge came from um, a few hundred miles away. The, these yeah. are the blue stones. 
they're smaller stones, and those at least partway could have been brought by barge or by boat. And those guys, the blue stones are only about what is it, nine thousand pounds? That's a hell of a lot. But when compared oh to 50,000 <laughs> 50, pounds or a hundred thousand pounds, those are that's that's a lot easier task. Even though it, it, you know, they had to move it a lot further. Now, how do we know they didn't have beast of burden? Um, as far as I know, there's no evidence of um, domesticated large, you know, oxen or something like that, <clears throat> and certainly no evidence of of um, any of the equipment necessary to say tether those animals or to use them to pull these stones. So, and I'm I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about it now. I am not sure. I'd have to check, but I don't think there there are domesticated cattle. Um, in England 5,000 years ago. But I would have to check that. No, I, I was just wondering why they why they say that there were no... Because I, I don't even know if it would help to have animals to drag those stones because well, some of them maybe. are so large. I don't know if that's even possible. So... Right. But, you know, we have no, we don't have any um, artistic depiction by the people of how they did it. Uh, Andy White, and we've had Andy on the show talking about giants and talking about the Roman sword. Andy actually tracked down some video, no, not video, it's film from the 1920s or 1930s from. And again, I'm, I'm going to get this wrong. I think it was from New Guinea. So it's. And those people were, in the 20th century, moving by the sweat of their brows and by their muscles, enormous stones as part of various ceremonies. And uh -huh. so we actually have, um, and I you know I'd have to check Andy's um, blog again, but early on when he first started, before the Roman sword, and I think even before the giants, maybe around the same time, he was tracking down these amazing films, ethnographic films showing large number of people moving enormous stones um, as part of a religious um, ceremony uh, to, to construct something that had a religious significance. So we know people are capable of doing it. We have film of people doing it. Right. Precisely how they did it at Stonehenge, we may never actually know. We won't know precisely how it's done, right. but, but, it, but we, least, we know it can be done. There you go. At the very least, we know that anybody who says people could not have done it, that's nonsense. We know people did it in the 20th century, and we know that there are any one of the ways that by, through, through experiment, we can move the stones. Uh, a, a reasonable number of people can move the stones. So that's not even uh, – that, that, at this point, that kind of a claim can be completely um, ignored, I think. I don't think there's so many people. I mean, I know that Stonehenge has a lot of, it has a lot of fringe attached to it. Oh, yeah, uh, sure. I don't think anybody seriously doesn't believe that the stones were put there by man anymore. Um, I know there's a few hanger-ons, but like I know for a fact that there's a guy out there that believes that they weren't carved, they were poured. Oh, yeah. They're, they're actually some, some kind of cement. Yeah. I've heard that that same thing has been argued for the Egyptian pyramids. The it's the same guy. Blocks. Is it? All right. That's, that it's the same guy. That's cool. I mean, it's, it's you know, 
there's no evidence for that. But no. Sarah, I just I think it's interesting though. I think that what you're saying is quite true. But don't you find it interesting that Stonehenge, which is an enormous, very impressive monument that happens to be in a part of the world where the people are white and European, that doesn't generate <laughs> nearly as much speculation as say the pyramids, which yeah, those were pretty damn big construction projects. And they happen to be in a part of the world where the people were not white. Then how come that, you know, I think we just at least need to raise the question or raise the issue that maybe people have a lot more trouble believing that Egyptians built the pyramids because they're not white Europeans. And ne nearly as much, you know, the people don't question as much the fact that Stonehenge could have been built by white folks. And you certainly don't see, for example, people wringing their hands over, oh, my God, the Romans 2,000 years ago built a stadium that could fit 50,000 people. P mere humans and couldn't ship have done battles. that. Yeah. So the, the deal is, if you know, if you can believe that the Romans could build the pyramid, the, 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 the Colosseum, well, then the Egyptians could build the pyramids and the people at Stonehenge could build Stonehenge. But that's, again, that's... That's another have, issue that we've harped on on a, on a number of occasions. But I think it's important. No, and, I, and I have always, I, we should go to break real quick because I want to talk about this a little bit more when we come back. So sure. let's go to break real quick and then when we come back, we'll, we'll talk about the uh, not so implicit racism in the whole right. fringe group around Stonehenge. <laughs> Telling a different story to the traditional lines of archaeology, the Anarchaeologist podcast seeks the stories and ideas that are often overlooked or not considered real archaeology. Video games, anarchism, and archaeology in the middle of hostile areas. Host Tristan doesn't search under the rocks, he destroys them. Available on iTunes every fortnight. Alright, and we are back and picking up where Ken left off. I have always found it interesting that when the fringe talks about Stonehenge, it's usually how the it, it's more of a cargo cult thing. They're using Stonehenge to signal to the whoever and they're using Stonehenge to communicate with whoever. But there's never been too much of an argument over yes, people did build that. Uh -huh. You know, it's there's only a few people out there, a few groups of the fringe that, that say that, no, it was aliens or giants or what have you. But I have always found it interesting that there's very little dispute over if human beings built it or not. Right. The, like you said, <clears throat> the farther out you get and the browner the people get, the more it's, no, no, they had help. Uh, the Atlanteans came and helped them. The the space aliens built it right. for real. Yeah. It's uh -huh. it's not man made. It's a natural feature. Those I mean other ridiculous ideas like that. Right. But yeah. but yeah, no, you hit the nail right on the head with that. And I I didn't until I really started doing the whole debunking thing. Now mind you, this is like four years ago now. It didn't really sink in that that's what was happening there. That it was sure. just this really subtle, probably not even like truly meant racism but it's just this really insidious one that gets in there and people are just like well yeah of course the druids built stonehenge and and aliens built you know the pyramids and everything else and it's just like well yeah but what made what made these white europeans so special right. that they it's, can suddenly do this but no one else can yeah it's kind of a presumptive racism 
Yeah. So overt, but it's just like, well, yeah, but but the, but Africans, Egyptians are in Africa. They're backwards. They're a thir- they're it's a third world country today. So in the past, they they must have been backwards as well. Right. That's, right. Know, in, in 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 air quotes there. Uh, but when you've got somebody like the Romans, well, of course they were able to. We don't need we don't need to be skeptical about their ability to do this. Right. And th- the rest of that sentence is not even maybe people aren't even consciously aware that the rest of that sentence is well, yeah, because they're white Europeans. But right. it's there. I have to say, I have, I have to, one little sidebar here, and we do this all the time, right, Sarah? When you said that that people we never get people, off track. I don't pe- know what you're people about. people on the fringe are saying that Stonehenge was was a way of you know communicating with the. The, the forces out there. Um, Kurt Vonnegut fans will recognize what you said because in his his novel, The Sirens of Titan, okay. one of his kind of hilarious, very hilarious um, themes is that all of the great things that human beings have ever created, the Great Wall of China, the Pyramid Stonehenge, were actually, we were programmed to build those things by a, a I think a colony of crashed Tralfamadorians who are on... Um, on the, the Titan, which is one of the moons of what Saturn, and that they need to communicate with their folks way back in their uh, on their star system, but their their regular communication system is down. So, and since they have like all the time in the world, they human beings evolve to build things like Stonehenge, which which convey very mundane messages back to the people on Tralfamador. So, all these great things that we're so proud of, like Stonehenge, just means. Um, when is the part coming? We've been waiting a long time, and then nice. the, uh, back back where they're come where they come from, they have these fantastic telescopes, so they're able to see what's going on on Earth. And it's it's kind of humbling because all these things we're so proud of the great the great accomplishments of ancient civilization are just these. We are we were programmed to do it by an extraterrestrial race, and all we're doing is transmitting extremely mundane, boring pieces of information by making these coded monuments. So That's there's funny. that. But, you know, well, now was... you know there's somebody out there now who's going to try to decipher all of the monuments. I hope you're happy with yourself. Well, I, you know what? I'm I'm proud to help. Um, <laughs> which, which, however, does lead us to in this last section the thing that we skirted around. We haven't really talked about is why did they do this in the first place? Why did they build Stonehenge yeah. in the first place? And why did they build it where they did? Lay lines yeah. aside. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, hey, listen, as far back as like the, I think it was the 17th century, um, folks who visited Stonehenge noted the fact that even though there's a series of concentric circles, there's the circle of the Sarsons, there's the, the circle or half circle of the Blue Stones, there's the circle of the, the trench that's all around the Sarsons, there's the circle of the the very, the Aubrey holes and the X and Y holes. That, when, that, that the thing that, that, contradicts that is the the horseshoe the trilithon that's in the middle of it and the yeah. fact that if you stand in the middle of that trilithon most of your a lot of your view of the horizon is blocked by big stones but you can look in one direction <clears throat> towards the stone that's called the heel stone which is off you know i'm not i can't remember the exact distance away but it's outside of the trench so it's a few hundred feet away and and that even in the 17th century, people said, you know, the, the monument does seem to be oriented towards a point on the horizon, which just happens to be the rising of the sun on the summer solstice. And as so even in the 17th century, people were saying, we believe that Stonehenge was a monument to the sun. And 
Subsequent research, and of course, folks who are familiar with Gerald Hawkins, the astronomer, and his book Stonehenge Decoded, part of which probably at this point we can dispense with, but some of which, <laughs> the core of which, is is basically right. That is, if when you know, when you ask most people where does the sun rise and the sun set, they'll tell you it rises in the east and sets in the west. But the fact is, it only does that two days a year in right. you know outside of the equator. That is, on it, it rises in the east and 22 days a year and that's on the vernal and the autumnal equinoxes and that it we're if you're standing in the middle of stonehenge um in fact the the sun on the day of the summer solstice rises directly over the heelstone when you stand in the middle of that and mm -hmm. every day after that the sun rises a little further to the south. We're in the northern hemisphere. Summer occurs when the northern hemisphere is tilted towards the sun. And from our perspective on the planet, that makes it look like the sun is rising further to the north. June 21st, June 22nd is the day in the northern hemisphere when the sun rises the most to the north, meaning right. that's when it's going to be warm for us. And after that, every day, the sun, on, if you wake up in the morning and look at sunrise, and this big Salisbury Plain is a big flat bowl. There are no mountains blocking your view <laughs> of the horizon. So you can look, true. you can actually keep track of the location of the sun. And every day it's a little further south and it's only pointing east. But now you've, since it's summer has already passed, it's now the, the, the autumnal equinox. And then it continues going south and it gets colder and colder and colder until it reaches its further south point on the horizon which is the winter solstice. And then, you know, people who kept track of that understood if the sun doesn't start moving north, we are, we'll freeze, the, our crops will never grow again, we need it to come further north. And that inflection day, that day when you see, you know what, the sun has stopped moving south, we've stopped getting colder, and it's now beginning to move north again. That's a sign that we are going to see the spring again, and it's going to get warmer. We're going to be able to plant crops. We're going to be able to harvest food. And that must have been super important. So knowing that dance that the sun does across the horizon um, is important to people. And everywhere across the face of the globe, people had various ways of keeping track of the time of the of the seasons by keeping track of where the sun where the sun rose in the sky and it looks like at the very least that's what they did at stonehenge they were keeping track on a law on a monumental scale um the location of the sun in the sky so they knew that it's coming back summer is coming i'd like and to know if no go ahead no, I just say that's that's incredibly important for a hunting and gathering people, and incredibly important for an agricultural people. It is, and I and don't think anybody should be. No one should be surprised that those that that. No one should be surprised that people were making calendars that far back. I mean, like you said, right. it's, it's vitally important to know what time of the year you're in. Um, but I, what I find really interesting about Stonehenge is it, it's definitely a calendar, and it's definitely set up. Uh, to keep track of the the summer solstice, um, or the, yeah, the solstices. Yeah, summer solstice. Yeah, but the it's it has also always been a burial site, and I find that interesting that you that they built this very uh, intentional setup 
at the same time that they were burying around and they were burying within the henge. Mm-hmm. So it's like, and they, and they even incorporate the burials into the stone placements that make up what could be considered a year. I mean, they've got, they've got enough stones there that you could, you could say that it's a 50, uh, 50, eight week year, which I think is correct. If you don't use the Gregorian, if you go by the moon cycles as opposed to the sun, anyway, I could be off. My math could be wrong, but my point being, um, I find it fascinating that they have always, whoever they is, has always incorporated burial along with their calendar, almost as if there was some kind of tie between the whole act of being dead and the act of keeping track of the seasons as well. But but I think what you have made an incredibly important point, and it's it's a it's a pet peeve of mine. You know, when I, I lecture publicly and I talk to my students, and one of the questions that people ask about Stonehenge, and I am not a Stonehenge researcher. I've been to the site. I've read about it. I'm somewhat familiar with it. But one of the questions that bothers me is people say, "Well, well, wait a minute. Was Stonehenge?" like a scientific device was it is it a reflection of the science of a calendar or is it a or was it a sacred site was it more like a church and my response to that is always that's exactly the wrong question because that's the way that may be the way we view reality that there's science over here and there's religion over here and the two are totally separate ways of knowing for the people who built stonehenge there is no dichotomy there is no split between worship and science, between knowledge and religion. They are part of the same thing. So that when you are building that monument to keep track of the solstice, the position of the sun, you are also worshiping the sun. And when you are burying important dead people there, you are merely emphasizing the religious significance of that place. But the religion and the science, the knowledge and the worship are part of the same thing. They're not separate. They're not distinct. So it shouldn't ever surprise you when you've got a monument like Stonehenge, which clearly from a 21st century perspective, we can use it as a scientific instrument. It shouldn't surprise us that ancient people did so as well, but but it's tied up with worship, religion, spirits, spiritualism. It's all it's part of the same thing. They're not you can't distinguish one from the other. Yeah, there's so, there's no doubt that it's a ceremonial site. Absolutely none. I mean, anybody sure. who thinks otherwise, I, I don't know. I just, what what do you need to have it prove to you that it's a ceremonial site? We don't, I mean, I don't think we'll ever be able to know exactly what ceremonies are going on there. There's been so much disturbance, right. not only by the priest or the, yeah, by the prehistoric peoples themselves, but also by modern standards. I mean, the place was threatened at one point to be knocked over to have buildings put on top of it. So, I mean, there's been a lot of, modern disturbance as well but you can't look at this place and not realize that it's some kind of ceremonial structure that that also keeps track of something incredibly vital to them well yeah Yeah. i mean that that's you know you and i can talk you and i can go to a planetarium and they can show us what we know about seasons seasonality and how we know that that it's based on the 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 Earth's axis and whether the northern hemisphere is pointing towards the sun or away. And we can see that. We can get kind of a God's eye view of it. And right. so we know scientifically why that happens. Imagine it's 5,000 years ago and all you know is 
every day the sun is getting is going further away. It rises further to the south, and we're up, we're up here, and it's going away, and it's getting colder. How do we ensure? How do we keep track of that? And how do we ensure that? How do we know that it's not going to just keep on going south and keep on getting colder, and we're all going to freeze? It's part. There's some cycle. There's some control. There's some power, and we're going to tell that power. We, we respect that. We worship that. And we want to make sure that sun comes back and, and uh, gives us the warmth necessary to grow our crops. I can't imagine a more impressive way of doing it than building something like Stonehenge. And obviously it, it, it makes, worked. It makes sense. Yeah. Well, I mean, something like Stonehenge works because like you were saying earlier, there's thousands, excuse me, there's thousands of these things all over the world this isn't just a druid thing i mean we've got wood henges in america there's right. yeah. multiple other stonehenge and wood henges throughout europe there's stonehenges in africa they're not on the same scale as the stonehenge in england any of them really but uh like you were saying there's one in where were you saying ashbury Avery. that's even Aysbury, which is a a v e yeah, and that's there's no there are no lintels there, but the circle itself is more stones, and the circle is much. You could fit all of all of the region around Stonehenge into Avebury. Avebury today is is a village. The village is surrounded by the stones that made up the stone circle. Yeah, so I mean, obviously, it's a system that works because we see it repeated in multiple cultures, and. Yeah that had no contact with each other at different times in their development. So we know it's not a trickle down, a trickle down thing. It's something right. that they are all spontaneously developing themselves. Right. And, and one of my, you know, I, 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 I'm contractually obliged to bring up my 50 sites project in book <laughs> every podcast, but you know, one of the sites in the 50 sites, and I heartily recommend people go and see it is the bighorn medicine wheel in Wyoming. And yeah. the Bighorn Medicine Wheel, it's way the hell up. It's 9,600 feet elevation. And it's this this amazing series of stones in a circle. And mm -hmm. emanating from the center of the circle are, I think it's 28 spokes, 28 pot, you know, additional rocks. So it looks like a big wheel. And uh, astronomers have analyzed that and looked at that. And they said, you know what? The, the cairns at the ends of the these spokes line up with celestial events. It's a calendar. Mm -hmm. So again, people see the deal is wherever you stand on the planet, if you're high up enough or if you're in a flat enough area, the horizon is a big circle. And so all the stuff that happens astronomically happens somewhere along that circle. So if you want to replicate that, if you want to make a model of that, you make a circle. Yep. And whether it's whether it's a, a wheel or a hinge or whatever else, um, that's what you're doing. You're replicating the circle. And then it's 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 our job as archaeologists to try to figure out. The individual placement of those stones, what do they mean? What's significant about them? And that's why I get so skeptical about crap that I see on television where it's they're like, oh, we found a chamber that on this one that on the, the summer solstice or the, the spring equinox or whatever the fucking day right. it is, the sun shines directly through the opening to the back of the chamber. And I'm like, do you realize that you could build a chamber any where and one day of the year the sun is going to do that i mean it's just I, yeah. it's going to happen if there's nothing else attached to it and all you've got is this fucking chamber with a hole in the wall and it shines on the back of the chamber that's nothing 
you're looking for something bigger, not like scale bigger, like physically bigger. You're looking for something that is a small part of a larger component yeah. or a larger the, piece. Yeah. One of the things Sorry. that Hawkins did is he applied statistics to the various alignments at Stonehenge and said, look, we recognize there are so many possible alignments out there so that, yeah, by sheer chance, if you were to map out your house and look at the where you sit by your computer and where the window is and line that up with the horizon almost guaranteed there will be some significant thing that happens and somebody could argue oh my god sarah has set up her desk and aligned it with the window and because she wanted to be where she could see the pleiades or I the did, big actually. dipper yeah well I there did. you go but <laughs> I had a map what, and everything. Haw what Hawkins did was he did a statistical analysis where he was able to show that the likelihood of the specific alignments that he saw at Stonehenge were enormously improbable by chance. Right. When you, when you got a one-off, when you go, listen, we have 100 stone chambers, but look, in this one, if you stand in the back, the sun shines through the air vent on exactly the summer, sol summer solstice. Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's not surprising if you look, if, if you've got hundreds of chambers and, well, the alignment only works in one of them, then right. you know, we probably can ascribe that to coincidence. Right. And and that's that's the, the, the thing that I'm having the hardest time communicating with people right now is how how much of a coincidence it really is. I mean, it looks intentional. I get that. I really do, because it's that one day, that one special, super special day of the year and it shines to the back. And I'm like, well, actually, it's like a three day gap, but whatever. But, you know, they're they're sold on it. And I'm just like, but it really is just coincidence. All right. Chris is giving me the high sign. Do you have any last thoughts on Stonehenge, Ken? No, my only last thought is it's an amazing, amazing place. It's not a mystery. It's not mysterious. Archaeologists are working very diligently to try to figure out the whys and wherefores of Stonehenge. And, and we're making that kind of progress. So if you're ever in the south of England, go to Stonehenge, go to a, a Swinside and Castle Rig and Avebury and all the other amazing megalithic monuments that are open to the public and go and check those out. And you will be um, come away amazed with the capabilities of ancient people not not atlanteans and not extraterrestrial <laughs> aliens but just plain old folks and as usual we're harping on our gobian archaeo tourist go do oh, it yeah. absolutely also ken has a book if you didn't know oh do, sarah what's the name of that i think the book is ancient america 50 sites <laughs> you can see for yourself but i I'm, i may have mentioned that previously <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> All right, man. Thank you so much, and we'll talk to you later. Absolutely. Great fun, Sarah. Bye-bye. Raise your trials as one will call. No way down to a dinosaur. Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it. Our music was provided by Archaeosuit Productions. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher and share us wherever you use social media. You can contact us with your questions, comments, or angry email at archiefantasies at gmail.com. You can follow the podcast at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash archiefantasies. You can follow the blog at www.archiefantasies.com and get updates on Tumblr and Twitter at archiefantasies. You can also look for us on Facebook. If you're looking for the show notes for this episode, go to the podcast website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash archiefantasies. Thanks again for listening. No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs.
We don't do dinosaurs. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.